Thank you, William. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Proverbs again. As you know, we have been systematically walking through the book of Proverbs from where our our church is at today and where we have grown to. Uh, We we decided a while back that that was probably a book that we needed to go through and really help us. And it's really been on so many different levels. It's been such a great book. And uh, this week we'll be in Proverbs chapter 15 and we'll be looking at verses 20 through 23. You'll remember that last week in those preceding verses we talked about uh, the principle of the simplicity of God and His Word. The fact that man will always try to frustrate the things of God and complicate them when in reality the things of God are are very simple. You know, it's such an easy concept that you know, man wants to make the Bible such a hard book and such a, a book that's almost, in many people's minds and hearts, unattainable. And, of course, that's not true. The idea that God would write a book and give it to man and then tell man that he was going to judge man by what he found out in that book or what he did with that book and then give man a book that was so hard that man could never figure it out on his own is just inconceivable. But that's what man does. <clears throat> He'll take the simple Bible that God gave to you in a fifth grade language and then try to make it so hard and keep you from ever attaining what God wants you to be and what you wants you to do with your life. You know, we saw last week how <clears throat> in our economic world, in our, in our societies, that uh, all of societies are built on giving us our flesh more and more. Uh, when uh, less is really better. And we come away with the idea that the more we have, the better off we are. And, of course, we saw last week that that's not necessarily true. I gave you a great principle in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, where it says, Godliness with contentment is, is great gain. And that's such a great verse. And we also saw, for those who go their own way, saw last week how that the Bible says that it will be a hedge of thorns, a very hard time. Trying to go through a bramble bush uh, is one of the un- most unpleasant things that you'll ever do in your life. They just stick you everywhere and cut you bloody, and you'll never get through it. And that's a man's life or a woman's life without the blessings of God. You're not going anywhere. And uh, at the end of your life, all you're going to be is cut up and bloody because it's like going through a hedge of thorns. And we ended last week with talking about the great concept of trying to keep our lives as uncomplicated as possible. And I told you last week, and I say again today, I know how hard that is. In the world that we live in, there's so much complexity. There's so many things that happen. And we have to be a part of it. You can't become a monk and live on a mountaintop someplace. You, 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 have, to, uh, you have to be part of the system. The Bible says that we're to occupy till, till the Lord comes. So there's things that we have to do um, that in this world that is very complex. But yet, we need to try to stay and understand that God's approach to things is, is simplicity. Now, today I want to begin reading in verse 20. And I want to begin looking at these things and coming down through it. And it says here, A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. Folly is joy to him that is destitute of wisdom. But a man of understanding walketh uprightly. Without counsel, purposes are disappointed. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. 
A man hath joy by the answer of his mouth, and a word spoken in due season. How good is it? Now, we're going to talk today, and we're going to look at each verse, and we're going to glean from that a principle, many principles, that are going to really help you in life. But before we do that, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Josh, would you ask God's blessing on, the, on our service this morning? Lord, thank you for this time that we can get together. Uh, thank you for everything that you've given us as a church that you've given us for you. Uh, it's been worked for uh, <coughs> by, by the blood of men throughout history. And uh, just give Bob the words to say, uh, get him out of the way, and get, get us everything that we need to get from this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, first off, let's, let's draw our attention to verse 20. It says, A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. Now, from a practical standpoint, if you're in the ministry or just deal with people, you're going to see this all the time. Unfortunately, many kids will grow up today, and, and uh, these children will not only uh, have problems in their own lives, that they'll bring uh, problems into the family. Uh, they'll bring shame into the family. Uh, and in time, uh, they'll actually uh, turn on their parents. Now, I love the way the, he uses the words here. And as I've told you many, many times, you always got to look at the verses of how he uses the words. And he chose to use the phrase, despises his mother. And uh, he said, the father is made glad, but he despises the mother. Now, that illustrates, when you understand how he's using the word, that illustrates how bad some situations can get. You know, I grew up and my dad and I didn't always see eye to eye. Uh, many of you, when you hit your teenage years, you think you know more than your dad does, uh, more than your parents do. I was one of those guys when I was 18 years old, I thought that my dad was the dumbest man in the world. But when I turned 21, uh, I could not figure out how my dad got smart so fast. <laughs> Truth of the matter is, he was smart all along. And many times, Many times you'll have issues with your father, but hardly ever with your mother. Mom's always been the one who tries to pull all things together. And even on my worst day, when my dad and I, and boy, I can think back of some things that, you know, that were not very good times uh, when I was an idiot back then, but never, never disrespectful to my mom. And the idea is here that some situations really get bad. And you talk about a really bad scenario is when a child, son or a daughter, despises their mother. I can understand how you can get upset with your father. But I'm telling you something, mom is always the one that is the most important person in a, in a, in a person's life. They really are. And for a child to come to the place where they, they despise the mother, you've got some serious, serious problems there. You know, parents always like to be proud of their kids, and I think that's very important. I've always been proud of my kids. We've got 100 million pictures of my kids growing up when they were playing ball or doing this or doing that, you know, and, and we were always proud of them. Uh, i got grandkids now, you know, and we're always excited about seeing them succeed and do things, and, um, you know, you want to encourage them. And you want to make a big deal about it. Shoot, I make a big deal about it here with your kids when they do something well or win a little league contest or run the marathon for you big kids, you know. I think it's important. Parents always like to be proud of their kids and take pride in the things that they do. It makes the parents glad. And it will, it will make the parents, you know, in, in, in this case, uh, when the child becomes a fool and causes chaos in the house, 
and later on in society, well, then it's a different story. And over the years, I, I've seen it in many times in the children of, of preachers, deacons, kids, Sunday school teachers, guys and men, men and women, families who in churches were supposed to be spiritual leaders. And how embarrassing that is to them who supposedly, you know, have it all together enough that they teach a Sunday school class or they're a deacon or even a pastor. I know of, I know of so many pastors who were really good pastors. They really were, but they all lost their kids, which negates the fact that they never were a really good pastor. They ashamed to be on the outside. And many times pastors have come to the point where they give themselves to their people so much that they let their own families fend for themselves, and that's a tragedy, and that should never be. No matter how good you are as a pastor, your first ministry, your first church, your first pastoring is your own family, and then it has to, has to go from there. I never forget my first year talking about camp. My first year I came to Kansas City in 1976. I was a high school director. And uh, we had our first camp. And uh, we must have had 90, uh, 100, maybe 120 kids go. Some of you were there. Steve Brackeen was, was there back then. Penny Honsinger, she's not here today, but she was here back then. Uh, and they they went to uh, they went to they went to camp and uh, I had Mel Sabaka come in. Uh, he was my father in the Lord. He was in New York at that time, and I figured I couldn't find anybody to do a better camp. And we had a, we had and I knew that it was my first year there, and I knew that this camp was going to be very instrumental in in me getting myself established with these kids. Nothing like a camp to really get them where you can get one on one with them. And I think that we had like. 40 kids saved that week. And I know that sounds like a great thing and praise the Lord, but it really wasn't. Most of those 40 kids saved were the sons of deacons, Sunday school teachers. It was not a very happy time when we went back. The fact that you were a Sunday school teacher or a pastor or a deacon and your child was lost and had to go to camp with me to get saved the baptismal service and those things are usually a joyous time. They are here. They were not very joyous back then. We had a lot of pious people back then who really resented the fact. It was amazing to me. They resented the fact. I guess they would have rather allowed their kid to go through the facade and die and go to hell. But they were, they were upset with me because their child got saved. I was even accused of, of talking their kid out of their salvation. I didn't talk anybody out of anything. We just got up and preached the Word of God and gave them the truth, which is what they weren't getting at home. And then God did the rest. This is why the Bible says in 1 Timothy 3, verse uh, 5, it says uh, a pastor has to rule over his own family, his children, uh, keep having them in subjection under all gravity. So we see the practical side to it. But in the doctrinal context, as it relates to um, in a specific teaching, in a future reference. It will give us some great insight into our own Christian life again. you got four elements here in this verse. First of all, you have the Father. Now, in a doctrinal sense, that'll be God the Father. Then you have the second identity is a wise son. The third identity is a foolish son. Now, that'll be you or me as is defined in the book of Proverbs. The fourth element we have here is the mother. Now, contrary to most people's ideas, that isn't Mary. That will be Galatians chapter 4, verse 26, New Jerusalem, the Bible says, which is the mother of us all, which is above 
and free. Now, we know that in the Bible, you have what the Bible calls the family of God. I've laid it out to you before. Sometimes it's called the household of God in John chapter 14 and Ephesians 2.19. Uh, it's called the family of God in Ephesians 3.15. And I've laid it out to you many, many times how that throughout the span of the Bible, you have different people who live in different time periods. Bible calls them dispensations. And each one of those time periods represent uh, a different part of the overall family of God. We are in the church age. We are different part of the family than the people in the Old Testament before the law. We're different from the people in the Old Testament during the law. So when you understand the family concept, we are, as part of this family, we'll be exactly what the verse says one way or the other. We, as the body of Christ, will either make our Father glad or if we turn from the Word of God and turn from the things of God, we'll wind up despising our mother, which is New Jerusalem, which really represents, and we'll see it in a moment, represents everything that we have in our own salvation. You've got to remember, and I know this is foreign today, but for you and for me as believers, there is no halfway measures with God. You don't kind of, you don't kind of love him this morning. Bible's much clearer than that. Christ is much more definitive than that. He says this morning, you either love me or you hate me. You either for me or you're against me. We like the little fantasy world of the illusion that in our minds that, that uh, you know, there's some twilight zone where I'm kind of really not with him, but I'm really not away from him. That's not true when it comes to the way God looks at things. Making our father glad or despising our mother. Now, you don't get off track, so so you don't get off track and get contaminated with the, a lot of man's garbage that he puts out there. In Christianity, Proverbs makes the wise man and the foolish man real plain. Last week, we saw in verse 19 that a man that has understanding, everything's real plain to him. The Bible's real plain. And when you want to understand what a wise man is, then you go to the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is about the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of God, being imparted to you and me as God's son. Solomon historically was giving it to his own son. Didn't work out very good for his son. And unfortunately, it doesn't work out very good for some time for God's people either. But you're going to find that in the book of Proverbs, it doesn't leave anything to the imagination. Bible's plain. Book of Proverbs defines what a wise man is. He gives you nine characteristics of a wise man. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says a wise man will hear and increase in learning. In 335, he says a wise man will inherit glory. In chapter 10, verse 8, he says a wise man receives commandments. In chapter 11, verse 30, he says that a wise man wins souls. In chapter 12, verse 15, he says a wise man will hearken to counsel. In chapter 14, verse 16, he says a wise man fears and departs from evil. In chapter 15, verse 7, he says a, a wise man dispenses knowledge. And in chapter 18, verse 15, he says a wise man seeks knowledge. In 29, 11, he says that a wise man guards his tongue. Now, when you take these nine things, and nine in the Bible is, represents fruit bearing, what you have is these nine things in your life and my life, becoming a wise person makes our father glad. 
Now, not only is a wise man defined for you in Proverbs, but you find that a fool is also defined for you. And there's eight things in Proverbs that define a fool. Now, where a wise man uh, increases knowledge uh, and learning, in chapter 1, verse 7, a fool, he'll despise wisdom. Where a wise man will depart from evil, chapter 14, verse 9 says that a fool will mock sin. Where a wise man will guard his tongue, Proverbs 10, verse 18 says that a fool will slander other people. In chapter, uh, in, in the book of Proverbs, it says that a wise man will hearken to uh, uh, c- c- counsel, but in 17, verse 10, the fool resists punishment and correction. Where in the book of Proverbs, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the wise man is content with what he has. The fool, 1724, his eyes are always to the ends of the earth. And in, where, in Proverbs, where a wise man dispenses knowledge, in Proverbs 20, verse 3, a fool is always meddling in somebody else's business. And the Bible says that a wise man receives commandments, but in Proverbs 26, 11, a fool is always returning to his sin. The Bible likens it to a dog always going back to his, his vomit. And where the Bible says that a wise man seeks knowledge, Proverbs 28, 26 says that the fool will trust in his own heart. And he winds up despising his mother, everything that she stands for. Now, based on these two contrasts, and that's really what they are, it becomes real plain. Sometimes it becomes too plain. We do what's right. When we do what's right, we make our Father glad by bringing honor and glory to Him, our Heavenly Father. And when we don't become a fool, then in time we make our mother, New Jerusalem, our enemy. Now, I want to talk about this New Jerusalem concept for a second. Bible says in Galatians chapter 4 that New Jerusalem is the mother of us all, which is above and free. And the Bible says in Revelation chapter 21, verses 23 and 24, and really chapter 21 is the definitive passage in your Bible on New Jerusalem. You know it comes down out of heaven. It seems a satellite over the earth when the Lord comes back and gets everything set up the way he wants. The Bible talks about somebody bringing their honor and glory into it. And the Bible talks about the fact that the light of the new Jerusalem gives light to all the nations. And the Bible says that even though it's a city, it's called a bride. And new Jerusalem represents everything that your salvation and my salvation is. We are the new Jerusalem. And just where when you got saved, your salvation and all of the concepts of everything about your salvation started with God started with the concept of the body of Christ in God's heart, in God's mind, the spiritual new Jerusalem, you and me, the abode for us in eternity, for whatever God's plan is for us. It stands and represents for you and me everything that we are and everything that we believe. Your salvation, your new birth came about from the concept of God, Christ, and the new Jerusalem. So she's likened to her mother because our birth, our spiritual new birth, goes all the way back to everything that she stands for. And of course, when we forsake her, when we forsake the things of God, when you take God's salvation in your life and my life, 
and completely walk the other way, then you despise everything that God has given you. It means nothing to you. Your value system is completely gone as far as spiritual things. And where a a wise son makes his father glad, a fool will despise his mother. And that's what happens to God's people when they go so far back into the world. All the things of God that originate and will be for all of eternity with the new Jerusalem, what it represents, what it stands for, we now look at those things and have no use for them. It's an incredible concept. Now, here's another great principle. And this is the end result of despising our mother and all that she stands for. Look at verse 21. It says, Folly is joy to him that is destitute of wisdom. But a man of understanding walking walketh uprightly. Now he says, destitute of wisdom. Man, that's one of the hardest things that I think you could ever say to anybody. That's a hard saying. You know, the word destitute is kin to the word desert. It's kin to the word despicable. It means emptiness, lonely, somebody with absolutely no friends, completely barren, no substance. It means abandonment. It means a total spiritual poverty. And in a, and in a family, in, 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 spiritual, in a spiritual sense, I've seen moms and dads that were absolutely destitute of wisdom when it come to their own kids. Now, I know that most of you here, or, or uh, if not all of you, you're, you're, in, you're in this church, you're in the Word of God, you're moving, you're growing, you're learning, you're doing everything you know how to do. Many of you have made some mistakes with your kids in life, and now you're turning that around and correcting that. Many of you have young kids, and, uh, and you, you've made a plan that you're going to do everything right with them. So I'm not necessarily talking about you, because you're here. And a lot of this, what I'm about to say, is like preaching to the choir. You're here. But in my life and in my ministry, I've seen parents in a spiritual sense that were absolutely destitute of wisdom. They couldn't even disciple their own kids. I've seen fathers that have no ability to, de- to disciple their son or their, or their own daughter. Uh, I've seen parents come to the point where they, they couldn't even win their own child to Christ when it came to that point, when that child was ready to do that. I've seen parents so destitute that they could never pray with their children. They had no idea how to take a child through those stages of spiritual growth and build them the way that God wants them to be built based on the Word of God. And I say it again. I'm not talking about you guys necessarily. I'm talking about the ones that I have seen that in my life that were absolutely destitute. You're here. You want to learn. You want to make the corrections. You want to be able to give your child everything that God wants them to be. Now this verse, and you want to get this, this verse is saying that when a child of God is destitute of wisdom, and boy, we've seen it. I've seen it with parents. I've seen it with just Christians in general. I've seen it all my life. God's people who claim to be saved, who as far as God and the Word of God were absolutely destitute of wisdom. They make some of the dumbest mistakes and decisions that you're ever going to see in your life. And the Bible says that when a man is destitute of wisdom, his joy, which should be in the things of the Lord, now becomes the things of the world. All the filth, all the garbage, all the things in the world. When we are destitute of wisdom, the devil will blind us. 
And what happens now is the real joy of your life should be the things of God. But the real joy now becomes the folly in our lives. Where a wise son rejoices in souls being saved, a fool without wisdom will rejoice in the $20 he won over a wager over a ball game. Where a wise son will rejoice over good preaching that, that hits right in the heart and bullseye in his heart and his, in his soul, a fool will rejoice over the opportunity to fornicate last night. Where a wise man will rejoice with others, save godly people over the things of God, a fool will rejoice in the beer parties and the drunken bashes when all of his friends get together to have a good time. His folly, because he has destitute of wisdom, his folly now becomes his joy. I mean, don't take my word for it. Just look on Facebook. What absolute idiots most of the kids are today. They post some of this god-awfulest stuff. Look at me. I'm proud of my sin. I'm proud of my drinking. I'm proud of this. I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the way I look. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable. Posting pictures of yourself in your sin and your folly. Having joy in your folly and, and proud of it. And the real goofy thing is, is the parents. I've had parents that have defended some of the stupidest stuff their kids have posted on Facebook. Hey, if some of my kids ever posted some of the stuff that some kids have posted, I'd put a chain around their ankles and drag them around the parking lot for a day and a half. <laughs> Listen, Job chapter 41, verse 22. You better get it down. It tells us that the devil can imitate and blind a man or a woman to the point that when the devil will make you think that your sorrow is really your joy, he'll deceive you. He says in that verse that the sorrow is turned into joy before him. The devil. You know how? Because you're destitute of wisdom. That's how. Why, in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10, I was thinking this. You kidding me? In the tribulation period, the Bible says that they rejoicing over the bodies of Moses and Elijah who have had their heads cut off and they're dead laying in the streets. And the Bible says they're rejoicing over the saints of God and their death. I wonder where they got that concept to make that their joy. But I also want to say this based on that verse in Revelation 11. Your joy won't be for long. Listen, when you make your folly, your joy, it's never going to be long-term. It's only going to be short-term. You can smoke cigarettes and go with the world and think that's part of it and think that's what a man does. Short-term, it's great. But when you die of lung cancer like my father did, that's long-term. High people drink and they, kids in high school drink. Everybody drinks. Everybody thinks it's okay to social drink. Why does even churches now that put out the idea that as long as you don't do it in excess, that it's okay to drink in moderation? Where did you ever learn that you can ever give your flesh that chance? Hey, I had never met an alcoholic in my life that wasn't down in the street, rolling over in the gutter, that ever admitted and thought he had a drinking problem. You know why? Because in his mind, as in your mind, as in my mind, there's never any satisfying the flesh. You give the flesh a license to do something like that, it'll take it and run a mile with it. Drugs. 
It starts out with marijuana, the gateway drug. It moves into other things because the society demands it. Your peer pressure demands it. And then you come and you lose everything you have. Uh, when I see this, this verse about joy uh, being, uh, your joy being your follow, folly, uh, it, in my mind, and it, it, it was always a tragedy. I never said anything about this, but I, I, I watched him for many, many years. It, it was something, one of those things I just put on a side burner and, and, and watched his life because when I first saw and was introduced to him uh, through a movie, I thought to myself, this kid's going to have some problems. It's a story of a boxer by the name of Tommy Morrison. Tommy Morrison was in the Rocky Five. He was Tommy Gunn back then. And I remember first seeing that, and they did a great job with it. You know, he was an up-and-coming fighter, and he was a fighter. He was a great fighter. He fought 52 fights. He, he won 48 of them by knockout. He was an incredible fighter. And his trainers and everybody said that he was one of the most natural fighters. He had a tenacity about him, and he was incredible. But you know what? He had to have the world and all that it offered. And at 44 years of age, in the prime of his life, where most other guys are coming off a boxing career and, and the notoriety and the fame of being able to help others, he died of AIDS. Because all across this country, he was promiscuous with all of the things. And all he wanted was a wildlife of sex and booze and the women and all that goes with it. He put no restrictions on himself. He was a great fighter. He was nationally known. Everybody wanted to be around him. Every woman wanted to be with him. And because he was destitute of wisdom, because he saw no link on his flesh, nothing that he would deny himself, short term it looked great. But he died at 44, full-blown age. Just one more tragedy. Now, verse 21 says the last part. A man of understanding walketh uprightly. He walks uprightly and rejoices in the right things. And I, I, you know, that Bible is so simple and plain. Why, in that book, not only, as I already gave you, will it define for you what a wise man is and in a fool is, so you can plainly find yourself. Hey, I didn't have to pass out any other stuff. When I went through those, everybody in here put yourself in one category or the other. It's so easy. Nothing hard about it. Not only does the Bible do that, but the Bible even tells you what you and I are to rejoice in. Because it tells you in the Word of God, the seven things up in heaven they rejoice on. How much easier can it get? The Bible is such a simple diagram of life with God. But man complicates it. Now that Bible says that we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. And because we are seated up there with him in heaven, these seven things that they're rejoicing about up in heaven, paying attention to, should be our joy. It should be our rejoicing. And most of God's people don't even know what they are. We just finished a couple of weeks ago laying out uh, what really transpired the day you got saved. What changed about your body, your soul, and your spirit. So everybody, plainly and clearly, could go out of here and have an understanding of it. Truth of the matter is, most of God's people have no clue. Oh, I believe they're saved, but now you put a gun to their head and try to get them to explain what happened, they could never do it. And you know what? 99% of God's people couldn't tell you the seven things they're rejoicing over in heaven. 
if their life depended on it. Christianity today, in most cases, may I say this, it's a joke. It's a joke because God's people are destitute. They have no wisdom. They're like the little rat in a maze trying to find the magical cheese at the end, which for us is heaven. So we go down through the down through the little maze of life, bumping our nose here, dead end street here, dead every street here. If a little mouse was really smart, he'd just go get himself a chainsaw and just cut him a direct path to the cheese. And I'm a smart little mouse. So I'm going to take the word of God, my chainsaw, and I'm going to cut me a direct path to the kingdom of heaven. It's where I'm going. They rejoice up in heaven over specific things. And in that Bible, it tells you what they are. In heaven, there are seven things they rejoice in and make merry over. Now, I got to tell you this. It isn't touchdowns in football games. You see it all the time where somebody makes a touchdown and they're pointing up to God or they're blessing themselves. Like God is standing in the bleachers up there and, 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 and wearing whatever shirt their team is. That's the idea that we get today. Or that when somebody hits a home run, he points up to God like God gave him the power and the ability to hit that ball out of the ballpark. I had a guy one time, I did an interview on him after he won the ball game, and he thanked God for giving them the victory. Like God is up in heaven rooting the teams on. You're destitute. Those aren't the things in heaven they're rejoicing over this morning. But I'll give you the seven things they are because I want you to be on track with it. You know what the first one is? The first one's found in Luke chapter 15, verse 6. It's soul saved. The Bible says there's rejoicing in heaven when a soul gets saved. Want anybody to Christ? You know what? You know who's going to be popular in heaven? The ones who made them rejoice the most while you're down here. We get the idea they're sitting around there saying, okay, the Royals are playing today. Let's get it all lined up. Some of the other angels will say, oh, I'm for Cincinnati or somebody else. They could care less. But, oh, you put some old sinner down there on his knees with some child of God opening up that Bible. And that, yeah, that man asked Jesus Christ into his heart. And heaven goes ballistic. We're rejoicing over the wrong. I'll tell you the second thing they get rejoiced over, Psalms 126. That's the restoration of the nation of Israel. Now, this is how off we are. This is how destitute we are. We look at the Middle East and we look at what's going on over there. We're all afraid of terrorism and ISIS and, 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 you know, and all of the, oh, the Al-Qaeda and all of the radical Muslims and all the people that want to kill us. And we forget the fact that all that is part of God's plan to restore and bring back the nation of Israel. And while you and I are afraid of it, they're rejoicing in heaven because every day, Every day, every day brings us one step closer to God bringing that Jew back and setting it all up the way he wants it. Why, the second greatest doctrine in the Bible was the restoration of the nation of Israel. They're rejoicing in heaven this morning. We're bemoaning the fact. I'll tell you the third thing, Luke chapter 15, verse 24, and that is when a backsliding child of God gets restored. You helped anybody get back? Put your arm about anybody that's out there in the wilderness out there that you know is where they shouldn't be and, and try to lead them back? 
I'll tell you something else, John chapter 16, verse 20, the fourth one. There's a second coming of Christ, the greatest doctrine in the Bible, the theme of the Bible. I'll tell you the fifth one's Revelation chapter 17, verse 18. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 and 5 is the destruction of Babylon, the great Mr. religion, and all that she represents. The mother of harlots, all the false religions of the world come from her. Boy, you get a great insight when you get the idea how God looks at false religions on this planet. You want to be tolerant. When they get destroyed, they're going to be rejoicing. Now, number six is my favorite. Because number six is they're rejoicing up in heaven in Luke chapter 20, uh, ten, chapter 10, verse 21, uh, at the confusion of Bible scholars. Well, that keeps them laughing in heaven, won't it? <clears throat> you know, this morning while we're here across this city, Throughout this week, 99% of the Bible study, the church services are nothing much but a bunch of rejoicing when a guy gets up there and says, now that in your original Greek is not what that word means, and then tries to confuse everybody. Because he's confused himself. And up in heaven, they just go at it, man. They're rejoicing. They're rejoicing. I mean, it's incredible. And then the seventh one, marriage of the Lamb, Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. That's for you and for me. And yet God's people who are saved... Are gonna, when the Lord comes back, we're going to the marriage of the Lamb, and then the marriage supplement, they don't even know what it is. I know over there in the Bibles, there's somebody that shows up at that wedding with doesn't have a wedding garment on, and he's asked to leave. Now, doctrinally, I know that's the devil and the Antichrist, but sometimes inspiration, I think it's some of God's people that miss the wedding. You see, you want to set your affections on these things, things that are above. You want to rejoice in them. They should be the joy of your life because they're rejoicing about them in heaven. And heaven is where we're going. <laughs> Colossians 3, 2 says, set your affections on things above and not on things of this earth. Now, let me give you this. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 9 says in the book, that great book, there's, there's nothing new under the sun. Right. Yet you ever notice how man is always coming up with something new? He says, this is new. Look at this. This is new. Everybody goes, wow, it's new. It's not new. That which is called new is not true. But that which is true is not new. The book of Ecclesiastes is the book about him going through everything that is under, uh, under the sun on earth. He goes through everything, every philosophy, every structure of government, every idea that man has under the sun on earth. And you know what he says? He says it's all vanity. Everything under the sun of this planet will get you nothing but heartache, brokenness, and a dead-end street in life. Everything down here is an illusion of newness. You and I should rejoice as they do in heaven. And the reason they rejoice up in heaven above is because if you know your Bible, you know that there's 12 new things that are above in heaven. Now, you want to rejoice in these seven things, and then you want to realize that I don't want the old things. 
I don't want the old things of this world. I don't want to think down on earth level. I, I want to think up. Somebody said to me one time, well, you don't ever seem to be down, Bob. You always seem to be on top of things. Well, I appreciate that, but that's not always true. I have my bad times like everybody else, but I don't try to let my life go there because I always try to think up, not down. Too many of God's people are always thinking down. If you're a child of God, you need to focus on what's above, not what's on below. Man, I get it. I just try to focus it all the time. I'll be walking along with somebody saying, hey, Bob, what's up? Heaven, it's up there. Hey, Bob, what's new? Jerusalem, Revelation chapter 21. Oh, I don't miss it. I don't want to think down here. I want to think up there. I know what's down here. God's people destitute today. For they have no real joy. You should rejoice. I should rejoice and set our affections on the things above. Lay up treasure in heaven, the Bible says. Twelve new things, Bible says, that are above. God's people don't even know what they are. They're destitute. No wonder you're always thinking down. I'll tell you the first one. The first one's over there in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 and 17. God gave me a new testament. See, the old one wouldn't cut it for me. Because in the old one, they had to bring their sacrifices. And the Bible says that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. So what I got that I focus on is not the Old Testament, though I read it and study it, but my focus is what's above on the New Testament. Because you know what I found in the New Testament in John chapter 3? I found a new birth. And I got saved. This old birth, I mean, I'm glad I got born the first time, but I'll be honest, all it did was give me heartache and trouble. That's the old birth. That's under the sun. I needed one that was above the sun that was new. Once I got the New Testament that gave me the new birth, then I realized, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. All things are passed away. All things become new. You know what that did for me? Once I got a new testament, I got a new birth, and I became a new creature in Christ Jesus, I got a new heart. I don't think the way I used to think anymore. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 16. The next thing, once I got a new birth, it gave me a new, uh, a new testament that gave me a new creation and, a, and gave me a new heart. In Psalm chapter 40, then I got a new song in my heart. Even praise unto our God, many shall see it in fear and trust in the Lord. You focus on too many things down here. Not only get a new creature in Christ Jesus and a new heart and a new song, that Bible says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, I got a new name written down in glory. I don't know what it is yet. But I know this, when the Lord comes back and calls my name, he ain't going to call Bob. He's going to call my new name, and I'll know exactly what that name is, and I'm gone. Now, because we got a New Testament that gave us a new birth, that made us a new creature in Christ Jesus, that gave us a new heart, to put a new song in my heart, that gave me a new name, when we take communion, we do it with new wine. 
Some people do it with the old wine that's under the sun, the fermented hooch. And because of all of that, one of these days, Revelation chapter 21, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 22, I'm going to get a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, mother of us all. I told you about the seven things they rejoice of. One of them was the restoration of the nation of Israel. They get some new things too. In the Hebrews chapter 8, verse 9, when the Lord comes back and deals with Israel, they get a new covenant. And they get a new spirit, Ezekiel 36 and Hebrews chapter 8. It's all new. Twelve things. Twelve things that are new and above. That's where our focus needs to be. That verse says that for an unsaved man or a worldly Christian, that his rejoicing is in his folly. But a child of God who walks uprightly, his rejoicing will be in the things that are above and the things that are new. Why? Because he has understanding. And when you don't have understanding, you're destitute. I think that's a great word. I'm going to add that to my vocabulary. Now look at the next verse, 1522. Without counsel, purposes are disappointed. But a multitude of counselors, they are established. Now first off, this is one of these verses that the uh, many churches today, the Roman Catholic Church in particular, uses to justify the church council down through history. And if you went through church history, you'd find that uh, there, there, there's many of church councils. Some of the major ones that are listed on our chart over there are the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Constantinople, Carthage, Ephesus, Chaldean, Constantinople II, Nicaea II. Uh, we Council of Trent in 1545 and, you know, all down through history. We have what we call the Ecumenical Council today, a bunch of churches together. We have the World Council of Churches. We have the National Council of Churches. And we've had Vatican II, Vatican I. Those are all church councils. And so this verse is used to prove that those are okay. Now, first off, somebody can't read. The word here in Proverbs 15.22 is the word council, C-O-U-N-S-E-L. The word for a church council is C-O-U-N-C-I-L. The word is not the same word, hasn't got the same meaning. They're not spelled the same. You're confused. And they're rejoicing in heaven over it. Now, Counts O-S-E-L is getting advice from somebody. Council C-I-L is a body of people with an agenda. And for the record, every council, every church council in the Bible and down through history has been against the Lord Jesus Christ and never for anybody in the New Testament. Just so you got that. Every one of them. Never held in any way, shape, or form by the true line out of Antioch. Now, the second thing here in this verse that you, um, that you always hear this, and it just drives me nuts. You're told before you make a decision, something you got to you got to make that may affect the rest of your life. You, you're supposed to talk to people and get their advice. And, uh, you know, presumably wise people, people with common sense. But as you know, well know, common sense is not too common anymore. Now, that can be really dangerous. I've seen parents give their kids the worst advice on the planet. I mean, it was riddled with the problem that is going to lead to a life of destruction. All because they're destitute. Destitute people will give destitute advice. Now, there's two reasons why this is really dangerous. 
And the first one is that, as I said, personal opinions will sell you to hell many times faster than salvation by baptism. You go to somebody that you trust and they give you the wrong advice or advice in their own life is upside down and destitute. Why do you think going to a person's life who is absolutely outside anything to do with the Bible, they would give you good advice? Now, the second reason is, is a lot of people like to shop around, and this is why they do it. They shop around to find what they want to hear. So you can go ahead and do it and justify yourself. That happens all the time. So you got a decision to make. You really want to make the decision, but you want to appear to be spiritual. So you'll shop around till you find somebody that tells you exactly what you want to hear. A lot of people find churches that way. They'll shop around and find a church that tells them what they want to hear so they feel comfortable. You won't, you, you, people don't shop for a church like that. You're all mission bums. You just come in and eat whatever we have. Most churches have a smorgasbord. You don't like this service? I guess this would be a traditional service. If you don't like this one, some churches will have a progressive service. If you don't like that, some churches will have a modern service. You can go to whatever service you want, and they'll dial down the preaching. You go to the traditional you'll get a little heavy-handed. You go to the modern, boy, everything is light and bouncy. You go to the contemporary, it's just like the world. So the pastor who preaches the same message, I guess, in each service, he has to switch them all around. And so he just dials it down. Oh, this is the, dial this one up. This is the traditional. All right, you're going to get it. Next one. Oh, you ain't going to get it. Third one. Get what? (laughs) It's like a Christian smorgasbord. You just go and pick whatever you want to eat. We we only serve one thing here today. I love you all, and you're all valuable. You're all worth a million dollars. But let's just be honest. We're all just mission bums. We're just one beggar trying to tell another beggar where there's bread. Sometimes talking to somebody can be good. Let me show you how. When I give counsel to people, they come to me in our counseling ministry, I never tell them what to do. I've trained you many, many times. You know, you lay out what their options are. You say, all right, here's where you're at. Here's where you want to get. Here's your options. Plan one, plan two, plan three. Plan one is the best. Plan two is not very good. Plan three is a disaster. But you've got to choose. I'm not going to tell you what to do because I'm not the one who has to live with the decision that you make. And that's what you do. You lay out their options. Now, when God saved you and he saved me, you know this. He saved us for a purpose. And you find that purpose through good counsel. Romans 8, 28 says, but we know that all things work together for good to them who are called uh, according to his purpose. That's the purpose he saved you and me for, the purpose of our life for him. And I I must tell you, finding out what God's purpose is for your life will be the greatest thing you ever learn to do. So consequently, it's the thing that most of God's people never do. Now, the verse here says, multitude of counselors. And as I said, that can be really dangerous. So if you're going to get a multitude of counselors, you have to get a multitude of them, of men who are all in the same mindset, same spirit. Now this is really easy because in your Bible you have 66 of the greatest counseling books anywhere on earth. 
put together by 38 or so men who, who wrote those 66 books of the Bible. When the Bible says in a multitude of counselors, those are the multitude of counselors you go to. You go to the Word of God. They all follow the same line of reasoning, and they all will always give you the right counsel. They'll never fail you because they're all from the same spirit. If somebody is helping you, like in Discipleship 1 in our church or Discipleship 2 or in your personal counsel, I can guarantee you, you can rest assured, nobody works with people in this church unless they are understand what the Bible says about doing it. We have a people ministry. And when the original people that came into that people ministry I opened it up to everybody in the church, it was designed to take people up to those levels to help them understand to work with me. They had to sign a contract. That contract is on file. Because I know how it works with God's people. You teach them something, you say, this is how I want you to do it, then you go freelancing and do your own thing, and then I call you on the carpet on it, and you say, well, I, no, 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 now we've got a piece of paper that says, what part of this did not you understand when you signed it? And there's a whole list of things. You know why? That's for your protection. That's so that everybody stays on the same page. Everybody follows the same rules. Because when you try to find God's purpose in your life outside the Word of God through the worldly system or even Christianity, it's going to lead to disappointment. You're never going to find it. And the verse says when you find your purpose in life that God wants for you for you to do through the counsel of the Word of God and its, and its principles, and you make your, your decision in life based on those, then the Bible says in the rest of that verse, you're going to be established. In our church, many of you have established yourself. You really have. I have no qualms putting you in just about any scenario that I may come up against myself. You've established yourself. And honestly, my goal, my final objective for all that we do to bring men and women uh, to that end, that you are established in the Word of God. And when you're established in the Word of God, then you're ready to be established in the ministry. Right now, we got 20 or 30 people that are coming. I gave you the challenge a number of weeks ago about going through the website, and then we got the idea of getting the uh, written outlines of going through each book of the Bible. Some of you guys are burning that thing up, man. I'm, I, I just, when you bring it over and I look at it, it absolutely impresses me. But on any level, you need to get to the place where when it comes to the Bible and the things of God, you're well established. Well-established simply means you know what you believe. Well-established simply means you know why you believe it. So you know what you're talking about when you say something. You have an ability to use the 66 counselors in your life first and in the lives of others. You have credibility. You follow the simple protocol of using the Scriptures in any situation. Let the Bible unfold itself and, and, and lay itself out. You know what's right and you know what's wrong and you make good judgment calls in your own life first and then help people in theirs. And you fight your spiritual warfare, oh boy, you fight your spiritual warfare from a fixed position. You know, in warfare, there's all kinds of positions and situations you find yourself in in combat. And some are offensive, some are defensive. But the hardest objective to take and the easiest one to defend is a fixed position where you're entrenched, you're embedded, you're grounded in, and they got to come to you to root you out. But they can't because you're fixed in a position. 
And when you know what you know about the Bible, when you are established in the Word of God, no one is ever going to take from you what you have. You're going to understand what they rejoice about in heaven. Your mindset is going to be on the 12 new things up there. And when it comes to what you believe and what you know about the Bible, you're fixed. And all the attacks of the devil and the world and other people can come at you to try to outroot you, but you're not going anywhere. You know why? Because you're fighting your warfare from a fixed position. You ain't going nowhere. Look at verse 23. A man hath joy by the answer of his mouth, and a word spoken in due season. How good is it? A couple of things here. First of all, Romans 10.8 says, The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Proverbs 16.1 says, The preparation of the heart of man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. The joy of your life, because it's certainly been the joy of my life, the real value system for you and me will be found in the things that we tell other people about God. There's the value of life. All kinds of commercials talk about buying gold and silver. And they talk about all the things that you want to make investments. You want to buy gold and silver is going to come up again. So buy gold and silver. They're always talking about investments, and they'll always end their commercials by making you think, by asking a question, what's in your wallet? And I asked you the same question today, except not about your wallet. I asked you this question, what's in your heart today? What are you preparing for? He said the word is nigh even in our mouth and in our heart. And the Bible says that the preparation of the heart in man, that's you. Right now, so many of you are preparing your heart. And the great thing about it is, I have people all the time says, Bob, I want to get in this and I want to do something. But man, I'm afraid that I'll get in there and somebody will ask me something or I won't know the answer. You got it wrong. You don't have to worry about the answer. When you prepare the heart, the Lord prepares the tongue. That's all you got to do. Just prepare your heart. You study to show yourself approved, 2 Timothy 2.15. You'll be ready to answer any man who asks us for the reason and the hope within you, 1 Peter 3.15. And in time you get established and God then can take you and drop you in any scenario, in any circumstance, in any situation. And he knows that you're going to tell them exactly what he would tell them if he was here. Think about that. You know what makes you invaluable to God? Makes you invaluable to me too, but I'm a nobody. But you know what makes you invaluable to God? Your ability to translate the word of God to another. You know the Bible's its own language. That's why most people can't understand it. And what you do, and so many of you do well, you translate. When I used to preach in a foreign country, and I didn't know the language, I had a translator. That translator would do what I would say, what I would say, and he would put it back in the same language, or many times she would, and it would translate out, and they would get the message. You see, the Bible's its own language. It's a heavenly language. It's a language that the natural man can't get. 
It's a language that even a young Christian can't always understand. And what you and I are supposed to do, who are established, who have our affection set on things above, who rejoicing in heaven, who have the new things in our life, you take the language of God and then translate it down to the common people so they can understand. You know what preaching is? You know what I've done today? I've taken three or four verses that most if you read, you'd say, boy, uh, I didn't get that out of there. You know why? Because I've learned to translate. I'm just translating it for you. I'm taking it and show you what God would say. That makes you invaluable to God. When you're able to take the Word of God and break it down and give it to somebody else. And then the last part of that verse, (coughs) and a word spoken (coughs) in due season, how good is it? I love the phrase due season. You know, the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are three great books. We talked about them a couple Thursday nights ago. It lays out one of the greatest examples of how God uses us if we're just willing to be used. And when you look at the books, those three books, you understand that the whole purpose of those books is to get the Jew back to where God wanted them to be. They're at the end of the 70 years captivity. God is going to bring a remnant back and get them there, but he had to have a man to do it. And when I look at that, those three books and I look at Nehemiah and how God used him, I think of many of you. I, 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 I look at many of your lives of how God, what God has done with you, with people, and the people that God has put you with. Because this idea of due season, hey, when you prepare your heart, when you get yourself ready, when you work at establishing yourself, this lays out one of the greatest examples of how God uses us, if you're just willing to be used. Nehemiah. We're just like you and me. But Nehemiah had a, had a heart for God. He had a burden for his people. Just like you and I should have a heart for God and a burden for our people. And you know what Nehemiah? Nehemiah just allowed God to use him. He was established. And Nehemiah is such a great picture of so many of you. He was the right man in the right place at the right time with the right circumstances set up by God. And he had the ability to recognize it. You see, when you're established in that book, God will put you, you'll be the right man, right woman, put you in the right place at the right time with the right circumstances that he orchestrated, but you'll have the ability to recognize that he's done that for you and then do something with it. That's the key. Bible says in Psalm 37, verse 23, oh, what a great verse. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And he delighteth in his way. God wants to order our steps in everything we do every day of our lives. God wants to establish you within the New Testament local church. You, your family, your ability to be used of God in any scenario. You speak English so well because you live in an English-speaking country. You learn to speak the Bible so well because you live in the Bible all your life and you learn the language. And when you don't, then you're destitute. The last part of that verse 23 says, how good is it? The man who has prepared the word of God in his mouth and allowed God in due season to use him to teach others, how good is it? Ask the people in Lincoln. You guys drive up there three hours one way. Got 20, 30, probably 40 people up there. Got them all together. All started with just a couple of families. How good is it? 
pretty good when you so unselfishly let God use you and take what you know and give it and bless others with it. How good is it? Ask our people in Wichita. Four hours away, no Bible-believing church down there, cold, dry land, yet four hours one way. Every month, some of you haul water, spiritual water, down to them. They're up here today, as our Lincoln crowd is today. How good is it? Ask them. Ask them. How good is it? Ask Wendy and Mark down there in Clinton, who drive up an hour and a half one way to come to church here almost every Sunday, who have such a burden for their family that ask, would we ever consider sending somebody down to have a little Bible study with their family and their friends? And why, my, my? You jumped all over it. How good is it? This little church down here in the basement of an old antique mall wouldn't even know it was a church. Should have a civil defense sign out front that says, bomb shelter, 400 capacity. This little church down here in the basement of an old antique mall God has taken people who have established themselves and reaching out all over this state and in time all over this country to give others what he has given us through you. Our website goes from the East Coast to the West Coast and everywhere in between. Ask the people in our own church that scores of you have spent hours every week giving them what God has given you. I know what you do. I know that what goes on. I know you Skyping people over the phone, discipling them, meeting people here, going to their home, working with them, helping them, giving them what God has given you. You've been established by God, and now you take all that God has given you and you help establish others. And I must tell you this. You'll never be able to make the things of God real in somebody else's life they first become real in your life. Established in the things of God or destitute of them. Years ago, there was a man that made a profound impact in my life. He's dead now. I look around here. Many of you knew Harold Massey. Harold Massey was a pastor. When I first came to Kansas City, he kind of took me under his wing. Harold Massey had been blind since he was a teenager. When I met him, he was in his 70s. He passed away several years ago. Harold Massey was, was one of the great men that God allowed me to come into contact with in my life. Harold Massey, uh, I always loved to spend time with Harold. Uh, he was, he, he'd been around a long time. He'd seen a lot of things. He had a lot of wisdom. He had a little track that he wrote that he used to pass out. I used to take him to the hospitals to make hospital visits. He had a little track he wrote that had his picture on the front of it and it said, some things a blind man can see. And it was the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's an incredible guy. I used to pick him up and on foggy days I'd say, Harold, you want to drive today? <laughs> I can't see either. He was not ashamed that he was blind. We'd laugh about it and joke about it. I'd always kid him. One time I took him to the hospital and he went to the restroom and he went into women's instead of the guys. I always kidding him that he really wasn't blind. <laughs> I loved Harold to death. One time I went to pick him up. His wife had passed away, Ernie. 
and I had picked him up at his house, and I got there a little early, and uh, I had honked the horn, the garage door would open up, and I'd go on up and go on inside. And he said, I'll, I'll be with you a minute. I, I'm, I, I'm not quite ready yet. And he asked me if I wanted some coffee, and I said, sure. So he walked over to the sink, got his cup out, and poured me some coffee, brought it over and put it down. And he was standing in front of a mirror. I'm thinking to myself, well, you can look standing in front of a mirror for you. You're tying your tie. I mean, you can't see. You know, but he was tying his tie, you know, and he was got, the, got his coat out. He, he moved around that house, never tripped, never stumbled. Never fell, never bumped into anything. I mean, there was stuff laying a coffee table that he just circumvented it, navigated it just fine. And I sat there and I was amazed. And I thought to myself, now here's a guy who's blind. And I just watched him open the garage door for me, get me coffee, get dressed, move through this house, never knocked over anything, never bumped over anything, never did anything. I, I went home that afternoon and I tied a blindfold around my eyes. I, I never told anybody this. I feel foolish even saying this. I had a blindfold around my eyes to see if I could do it. I broke my knee. I, I fell down. I kicked the dog. I, it was terrible. And I sat there and I was amazed at, at what he could do. And then suddenly, God, like he's done so many times in my life, he took that illustration of what I saw and he brought it right home. And he said, you know why he can navigate through his house so much? He says, because he's lived there for 20 years. Now, you're trying to learn the Bible, Bob. You're trying to teach other people how to learn the Bible. You know, the easiest way to learn the Bible and the simplest way to learn the Bible is just like Harold Massey found his way through his house. Just live there for 20 years. You'll find where everything is at. You'll never stumble over a verse. You'll never get hung up on a concept. You'll never trip over a principle. You see, when you live in the Bible, you're established in that book like Harold was in his home. He was blind to the things of this world, but he knew his way around the house that he lived in. You and I should be blind to the things of this world, but we ought to find our way around the book that we live in. A wise man's going to make his father glad. A foolish man going to despise his mother. A wise man is going to have all the wisdom. A fool's going to be destitute. A wise man is going to set his affections and learn what's above and what's new. And all the things they're rejoicing in heaven. The fool will take his sin, his folly, her sin, her folly, and that will become their joy. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Father, we